In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And Helen, this is a momentous week for Scottish Blethers. This weekend, we're due to go through 10,000 listens to our podcast. Can you believe that? I just cannot believe that, Liz. I were about just a year, just less than a year since we started. And I just got 10,000 listens. That is wonderful. It is. And also this week, we have the last in our current series of our um, virtual tours where we're heading off to Iona on Thursday night, Thursday the 3rd of June. You looking forward to that, Helen? Oh, very much so. And I hope the weather's as it is today. Beautiful, bright blue skies and sunshine. Yeah, nice calm crossing, seeing Iona at its best. Yep. So more of that at the end, but let's crack on with today's episode. And um, for today's episode, I'm going to be looking at puffins. Um, these little comedy birds that everybody loves when they come to Scotland. What about you, Helen? What are you going to kick off with? Well, I'm going to kick off with uh, a little talk on Falkland. I think a much sort of ignored, beautiful village in Fife. So I'll just get going on that, Liz. Right. So this is a small picturesque village and it retains, Falkland retains its natural charm from its medieval roots. It's the first conservation village in Scotland, thanks in part to its very grand past. Falkland Palace was one of Mary Queen of Scots' favourite places to visit and is one of the finest examples of French Renaissance architecture in the UK. And it's also home to the world's oldest real tennis court. Nowadays, if you're an Outlander fan, you'll find yourself on location in Inverness, in inverted commas, standing in the square just outside Mrs Baird's guest house. The market cross where the ghost of Jamie stood and watched Claire by her window. The shop window of Fair Earth Gift Shop stood in for Farrell's Hardware Shop, where Claire spotted that beautiful blue vase. You will love a visit to Falkland Palace and Gardens. It was once a palace for Scottish kings, and is now maintained by the National Trust for Scotland. It goes back to its building in the 13th century, 
and the castle was transformed into a royal palace during the 16th century. And as I said, one of the few Renaissance-style palaces in Scotland. The starting point for the story of Falkland Palace has to be with Robert Stuart, Duke of Albany, the younger son of Robert II, and he was a strong candidate for the title of the least pleasant person in Scottish history. Robert Stuart made his home at Falkland Castle, which he renamed Falkland Palace, probably a wee hint of things to come. Robert was appointed Guardian of Scotland in 1380s, in preference to his elder brother John. And although John went on to be crowned King Robert III, one of these wee anomalies of British history, the names get changed when they become king, he went on to be crowned as Robert III, he was in poor health and his younger brother, the Duke of Albany, continued to rule, in king in everything but name. But Falkland Palace was a bit of a place of murder and mystery. In 1402, David, the eldest son of Robert III, died while being held prisoner by his uncle, the Duke of Albany, at Falkland Palace. They suggest he was probably starved to death. The Duke of Albany then forced Robert III's younger son, James, to flee Scotland, and he probably arranged for his capture by English pirates. When James, now King James I, returned from captivity in England in 1424, among his first acts was the execution of Murdoch, the second Duke of Albany, that was Robert Stuart's son, and the annexation by the crown of Falkland Palace. The palace came to be regarded as a country retreat by successive generations of the House of Stuart, and by the time James V oversaw the finishing touches to the gatehouse in 1542, that was not long before his death at Falkland that year, the building had changed beyond anything that would have been recognised by Robert Stuart, the Duke of Albany. And then, about a hundred years later, Cromwell's troops occupied the palace, and during that time, fire destroyed much of the palace, and the remainder of the palace had been allowed to become derelict and overgrown by the 1800s. And then it was rescued by John Crichton Stuart, the third Marquess of Butte. He purchased the keepership and the palace in 1887 and set out to restore and, where necessary, rebuild the palace so that it regained the glory it had seen in James V's time. When he died, the National Trust for Scotland were appointed deputy keepers of the palace and have since sought to preserve the palace in the condition that John Crichton Stuart left it, although they have added furnishings for the recreated King's Room and Queen's Room. But another thing in Falkland Palace Estates are the Falkland Real Tennis Court, and this is unique. Of the 48 active courts in the world, Falkland Palace is the home to the world's oldest tennis court. It is also the only one in Scotland and the only outdoor court. That seems a little bit of a contrast. The court was built for James V of Scotland and the building took place between 1539 and 1541. And James V played on the court, and it is said that Mary, Queen of Scots, also played on the court. Scotland, at the time the court was built, tennis was known by the Scots word caich, it's C-A-I-C-H, or catch. A tennis court was called a catch pool, derived from the Flemish Dutch for the game of chases. The court at Falkland is a jeu quarry, rather than the later and more common jeu à dedans. 
The court is also unusual. It doesn't have a roof. I'm not going to explain the rules because they are they look very complicated to me. If you think of it as a combination of tennis and squash, because you use the walls as well as the court. The court's 450th anniversary was celebrated in 1989 with an international tournament, which the Falkland Palace Club won. The court is no stranger to royalty, even in modern times. The championship was attended by Prince Edward. He apparently is a very good player of real tennis. And to celebrate or to kind of advertise or commemorate the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme, he played real tennis in practically all the courts across the world um, that he could. And the championship was attended by him in, in 1989. And Elizabeth II has visited twice, not to play, but just to watch demonstrations. Her recent visit was in 1991. The other thing about Falkland is it has it was home or a kind of spiritual home to the legendary musician Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash was very proud of his five roots. And this came about with a chance meeting in the late 1970s, where he found himself sitting next to Major Michael Crichton Stewart, who, as we said, was the hereditary keeper of Falkland Palace. This was on a flight from the US. And Major Crichton Stewart told Johnny Cash that Cash was a very well-known name in Fife, and especially his area of Fife, near Falkland. So Johnny Cash had his ancestry researched and found that his family went back to the 11th century in Scotland, although they'd emigrated to America in the 1700s. And in the 1980s, Johnny Cash recorded a Christmas special from Falkland for T US TV with Andy Williams as his guest. And up in the memorial gardens at Falkland, there's a bench dedicated to Johnny Cash. And there's other interesting people in Falkland. Outside in the square, you'll find the Bruce Fountain, commissioned by, I always struggle with this name, Onesiphorus and Margaret Tyndall Bruce. The fountain is decorated with lions and each one painted red, holding a crest. Outlander fans might recognise that fountain. But who is this man with the unusual name that I struggled to pronounce? In 1820, the Falkland estate was purchased by Professor John Bruce, who died in 1826, leaving the estates to his niece, Margaret Bruce. She married Onesiphorus Tyndall, a Bristol-born barrister with considerable debts, and they had a prenuptial agreement. She would pay off his debts, but he had to take her name, and they became the Tyndall Bruces. They spent many decades accumulating land in Fife, as well as building, funding the Falklands Parish Church and the Fountain. They were renowned for their charitable giving and played an active role in Fife society. And interestingly, Onesiphorus, the name, means bringing profit, which he certainly did to Falkland. But it's just a beautiful situation. It sits right on the edge of the Lomond Hills Regional Park, a beautiful natural paradise. And trails to the park and around the park begin right here in the centre at the Market Cross. And you can go through walks leading through and behind waterfalls and up to the Tyndall Bruce Monument. It's a great day out going to Falkland, plenty to do and see in and around the village. So, Liz, have you been to Falkland? 
Oh, I absolutely love Falkland, Helen, and of course it's quite local for us, so yes. yeah, I love a visit. So much to discuss about what you're, you're talking about there. I mean, when, as you're talking about it, I always think of the Stuart monarchs, Mary Queen of Scots, yes. and her father and her grandfather, because they absolutely loved it for the sport, in particular the hunting. So they would go on the royal progression around Scotland, where basically they turned up with an entourage of about 200 and all their furniture coming, loaded onto wagons and whatever. And they would basically eat the area and drink the area dry so that they had to move on. You know, And the, the castle or the royal palace had to be cleaned at the back of them. But those of the, our listeners who might be into golf might have come to St Andrews. They may be aware of King's Barnes Golf Course and uh, estate. And of course, King's Barnes was where they stored all the food and drink ready for the royal progression arriving. Yeah, I just think when they cleaned the palace after the royals had gone, the royals took all their furniture with them. Everything right down to the last wooden spoon for the kitchen was loaded up and went with them from palace to palace. So the cleaning would be quite a reasonable job. I suppose it would be a a hose pipe and a scrubbing brush. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like uh, travellers going on holiday in post-COVID times yes, have taken all right. the laundry and the yes. furniture with them. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> And you can also picture the, the royals out hunting. They were into the falconry and it said that James V, the father of Mary Queen of Scots, he was so into his sport and his hunting in the forests around Falkland that he would go out on a day's hunting and then he would order all the wild boar and the stag to be released so that it was game for the following day. Oh, I didn't know that. But but that's actually very nice, isn't it? So long as they weren't too wounded, I suppose. I suppose, yeah. yeah. No, it is. It's beautiful. And do you remember the, the tea room that used to be there? What was it called? Kind Kitty? What was the oh, tea room yes. With the beautiful scones. Kind Kitty's tea room or something. I'm not sure if it's still there post-COVID. But certainly, if you fancy just wandering around, as you say, the streets, there's one of the streets called Cash Fuse, F-E-U-S, which is... Uh, Going back to Johnny Cash's relations, fuse were rented or leased lands. So there's certainly, and he was very fond of the um, the musician's shop on the corner where they have the, the collection of old musical instruments. Yeah, that's, that's a lovely shop to wander into, isn't it? That one. The, the, that's the thing about Falkland. It's got a lot of lovely tea rooms. And if you look at the, the marriage lintels above many of the doors in the village, they all go back to about the 1600s. It's beautiful just seeing them. And I think you've got to, well, I don't because I'm only five foot three, but I think (laughs) many people have got to duck their heads, lower their heads as they go into these front doors. Yeah, and and as you quite rightly pointed out, easy for you to say, Onesiphorus Tyndall Bruce, um, his his money and the wealth which he gave the parish church and the, the water fountain and whatever, so he certainly gave a lot which remains in Falkland today, but the money was actually made on the back of the slave trade out of Bristol. So a controversial topic in Scotland today because a lot of our cities um, have a lot of wealth accumulated by that route. Yes, I think it was his his family before him in the 1700s that had been involved because Bristol was heavily involved in the slave trade, wasn't it? It was, yeah, the ships leaving from there. Yeah. But he, he got himself into debt, so had to marry a wealthy woman. I think they married when she yes. was about 40. So I think it worked out as a very nice marriage, but um, I think they were quite pleased to find each other. You know, Him for his clearing of the debts and she for continuing the family <laughs> name. <laughs> a marriage made in heaven. 
just like Jamie and Claire and the Outlander, you know, so if there's any Outlander fans and music fans as well, because it has a, a lovely festival, a music festival, which I don't know if it'll be running this year, but it will return at some point. But it was interesting, even during COVID last Christmas, they have a wonderful Christmas market just held in the Village Hall in Falkland. And it went ahead and I went up there and got some lovely stuff. You know, all handmade by local people just setting up their stall. And you, you met people like the local podiatrist who wasn't able to work because of COVID and had found that she had a talent for making glass and had beautiful glass dishes and things on her stall. And she was saying, it's the first time I've ever done this. Wonderful. And so many little craft shops and interesting shops that if you're into your retail therapy, another reason to visit Falkland. Definitely worth putting on your itinerary for a tour of Scotland. Exactly. And moving on, talking about what to put on your itinerary for a tour of Scotland, um, at this time of year, one of the most popular activities for visitors to Scotland is to go in search of Fraterula Artica, the Atlantic Puffin. Everybody loves them and wants to get up close and personal with these comical little characters who return every year to breed on some of our most precipitous cliff faces and offshore islands. Instantly recognisable, their distinctive appearance has given rise to many alternative names. Northern penguins, because of their black dinner jacket suits and white bib, perfect camouflage for when their black back is viewed against the sea from above and their white underparts against the sky when viewed from below. They're actually a good bit smaller than a penguin, standing just about 10 inches high and weighing about the same as a can of coke. Their black and white plumage is also said to resemble monastic robes, hence their scientific name Fratercula, which is Latin for little brother. Sea parrot is an obvious moniker given their characteristic technicolour bill and matching orange feet. But my personal favourite nickname is Sea Clown because of their white cheeks with a conspicuous clown-like black stripe running down over each red-ringed eye. It looks just like Piero with a tear sliding down their face. But it's impossible to be sad if you watch them for a while because their wings are so small in relation to their overall weight and shape, they haven't quite mastered the art of smooth takeoffs and landings. Their wings can beat up to 400 times a minute during takeoff, making them look like a bloody little furball. But their landings are even more hilarious, often crashing into the water or rolling onto the grass, tumbling into any other puffins that might get in their way. It's easy to see why they get the nickname clowns. Once they do manage to get into the air, though, they're skilled aviators, cruising at a relatively high altitude of around 30 feet and reaching speeds of up to 50 miles per hour for short bursts. But it's in the water that they really come into their own, using their wings to literally fly to depths of up to 200 feet and their feet like rudders to steer and change direction when hunting for their food. Their preference is for sand eels and small fish, but if these are in short supply, they'll also take crustaceans and squid. Their lives are lived in two distinct phases. For most of the year, about eight months, they're solitary creatures, dispersed across the Atlantic Ocean far from land, spotted in the seas off Italy, Portugal, Spain, even North Africa and Newfoundland. 
During winter, the colourful plating on their bills and the eye decorations fall off and they become much duller birds in appearance. But their waterproof feathers and their ability to drink seawater make them ideally adapted for these long solitary months, swimming or resting on the waves. As spring approaches, it's showtime. As the warmer spring weather arrives and the breeding season approaches, they begin to develop their characteristic colouring. Unlike many birds where it's the male who develops the showy plumage, it's hard to tell male and female puffins apart. The more vibrant their colour, the better. The size and colour of a puffin's beak is thought to serve as a badge of experience and is definitely eyed up when assessing the quality of a potential mate. Occasionally a puffin may not get the memo about dress code and shows up on land still wearing their winter plumage. They've got no chance. More and more puffins join the party and they begin to form large rafts floating on the water, safety in numbers, ensuring that they're better protected from their numerous predators. After a time, they head on to land to prepare for breeding. And having spent so much time on their own at sea, they're now looking for company and will only breed where there are other puffins present in huge colonies, known by a range of names, puffinry, circus, gatherings, even an improbability of puffins. After being silent at sea for so long, they now find their voice. During the breeding seasons, the males tilt back their heads and give a pig-like grunt to charm a female. And once they're established in their pairs, their growl is said to resemble a muted chainsaw. Puffins don't make nests, they dig holes called burrows in soft earth or between the rocks on steep sea cliffs where the predators can't get at them. Their large bills and feet are ideal for, dig for digging, shoveling out dirt behind them like a terrier going after a rabbit, until the burrow is about two to three feet deep, long enough to keep their precious eggs hidden away from predators. Although most will dig their burrow, some are opportunistic and will go for a rabbit burrow, pecking at the unfortunate occupant until they chase them away. We all know that type. <laughs> Puffins mate with the same partner for life, which can be up to 20 years. A romantic notion, but it's really more to do with the habit of returning to the same burrow each year, so chance would have it that they would bump into one another. It's unclear how they manage to navigate back to their home grounds, but it's thought they may use visual reference points, smells, sounds, even the Earth's magnetic fields, or perhaps even the stars. They show that they're pleased to see their mate, by repeatedly turning their heads from side to side and clattering their bills together, which often draws a crowd of interested bystanders. At the back of the burrow, the male builds a nest lined with grasses, seaweed and feathers. A few weeks later, the female lays a single egg, usually white in colour, but sometimes pale lilac. Both parents take turn incubating the egg for about 40 days. They've got a patch of featherless skin on their underside called a brood patch that allows heat to be transferred and the incubating parent holds the egg in place with its wings. When a chick hatches it's called a puffling and its parents take turn feeding it by carrying small fish back to the nest in their relatively spacious bills. You've all seen the familiar pictures of the puffin with rows of sand eels crosswise in its beak like silver whiskers. Unlike many birds which regurgitate their food for their young, puffins carry the fish back to the burrow in their mouths. 
The average catch is about 10 fish per trip, but the record in Britain is a whopping 62 fish in their beak at one time. <laughs> Puffin's beak is specialised to hold all of these fish as it has a raspy tongue that holds the fish against spines on its palate while it can open its beak to catch more fish. Just as well because these pufflings have a big appetite. The chick is finally able to leave the burrow after seven or eight weeks and they fledge at night. And after fledging, the chicks spend the first few years of their lives at sea, returning to breed about five years later, finding a mate and digging their own burrow. And so the cycle continues. Ever since humans have inhabited the most northerly regions of the world, they've hunted puffins for both their meat and their eggs. But nowadays we have a more symbiotic relationship. Puffins have learned that when they're close to humans, they're less chance of attack by other mammalian predators, so they're often quite willing to allow humans to get up quite close. A photographer's dream. So when it comes to spotting puffins, you're spoilt for choice in Scotland. The Northern Isles of Orkney and Shetland, St Kilda, the islands of the Forth, John O'Groats and Cape Wrath, Staffa and the Inner Hebrides. These all offer ideal opportunities to tick off meeting a puffin as something completed on your bucket list. So have you seen a puffin, Helen? Yes, I was very, very lucky. I, I took the grandchildren camping on Iona a few years back now and we, there was a glorious day, very calm day. So we took the boat from Iona out to Staffa and we went first along to Fingal's Cave and had a look at Fingal's Cave and then went up onto the cliffs to see the puffins. Well, of course, the kids ran up onto the cliffs, up the, up the steep steps. And when I got up to the top, oh, my heart just about stopped. They were sitting there right on the edge of this very steep cliff trying to take photographs and speak to the puffins. So I just said, get back from the cliff. <laughs> Grandma, shush, you're going to frighten the puffins. I don't care, just get back. <laughs> so they got back and we enjoyed just watching the puffins. And as you say, Liz, they come up really close. You know, they're sitting sort of on the grass and they're, they're almost pecking at your shoelaces. It's, it's lovely. But the big surprise for me, Liz, was their size. I did not expect them to be so small. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But they're sitting there saying, oh, here comes another troop of humans, you oh, know, yes. entertainment for the day. Yeah, you think they think we're amusing, but just look at them. And, and they did say that, of course, it was the, the reason that they were so friendly, and you, you did mention this, is that if there's humans there sitting on the cliff, it keeps the seagulls away, and the seagulls on these cliffs are one of their biggest predators. Yes, they're trying to protect their eggs because they only lay one egg in a season. But if a predator does get that egg early in the season, they can lay a second one. But usually it's, it's just the one egg. I had a group of, um, of, of MITRE members across on Orkney and Shetland, the Northern Isles, um, a couple of years ago. And uh, that was the first time I had really seen puffins up close. And if you are a keen photographer... That's what actually brought this topic to mind yeah. because I was getting all these photos coming up in my memories on Facebook and they are so photogenic. Um, they're, they're just a delight. Yeah, I think that I've been to Staffa twice. The first time I went, I went was so stormy that we just had 30 minutes to run to the cave and back so we didn't get onto the cliff. And then, as I say, the second time was just, oh, it was an ideal day. And that's when we saw the puffins. 
and they're they're so you know, dispersed all over Scotland on the sea stacks, particularly off the the coast as you get up towards the the northern coast of of Scotland, Cape Wrath and whatever. On the way up through Caithness and Sutherland, there's a lot of sea stacks, and there's nothing better than just um, plopping yourself down with a pair of binoculars and just watching them arriving yeah. and leaving. And they're also they're said to be very intelligent, and um, there's actually evidence that they can use tools. And uh, so they have a lot of ways in which they communicate by body language. You know, this is my patch, clear off. So you can sit and watch them for hours. And as you say, they are very, very humorous. At least to human eyes, they look very humorous. And of course, you're talking about um, Staffa there, Helen, a short hop um, in the, uh, the boat or ferry. And you're across to Iona. And this week... We're going to be doing our virtual tour, our last virtual tour of the current series, and the topic is Iona. Are you looking forward to it, Helen? Very much so. I think I think that it's it's a lovely way to finish this our first series of virtual tours with this beautiful island and the story of the island of Iona. Yeah, no puffins there, but it does have the corn creek at this time of year. So we might mention the corn creek and tell you about that. Um, the right. There's so much to talk about. We'll have to, to choose our topics well. So if you're interested yeah. in joining us, um, all the details are on social media, at Facebook and Instagram, or you can drop us a line on our email at scottishbletherspodcast at gmail.com and you can get all the details for that. Do you have a word of the week, Helen? I do. And I was just thinking when we were talking about Falkland and the royals, or the, the Stuart uh, kings and queens walking and having it as their holiday home, their their country palace, that they were real Kent figures in the tune. Real Kent, the well-known people in Falkland. Real Kent, W-E-E-L, second word, Kent, K-E-N-T, real Kent. Well done, a good one. Well, for my one, it was an obvious one, because if you go up to the Northern Isles of Orkney and Shetland, they don't call them puffins there. They call them Taminoris, T-A-M-M-Y-N-O-R-R-I-E-S. So they've got, the islanders have got names for all the seabirds up there, but the puffins are called Taminoris. Oh, a new word for me, Liz. Thank you. I didn't know that. I thought you'd have known that one, Helen. Yep, yeah, it's uh, one of the ideal places to see them is up to the north. And of course, the, the home for the, the puffins, the place that you'll see literally millions of them, is on Iceland, um, where colonies there can be up to four million birds in size. So they're sociable animals. They like company after that long period of time. It's a bit like us, Helen. They like a good blather. <laughs> exactly. That's what they do. <laughs> Okay, that's us for this week. Bye for now. Bye for now. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.